Well, hey everyone, great to see you again. Now, in case you hadn't noticed, I've been out on sabbatical. So this is the first time we're together in six weeks. I think it's the longest time I've ever been away from Grace. And in case you're wondering, yes, I missed you. <laughs> I didn't miss the emails or the meetings or the deadlines. It was nice to take a break from all of that. But I did miss you and my teammates on staff. So I was glad to get away, but I am glad to be back. And by the way, if you haven't heard, we are now masks optional across all our campuses for all ages. So if, if that's been keeping you from joining us in person, this is a great time to uh, reconnect with your local campus. Now, if online is still the, the best or the only way for you to join us, then just keep on doing that. I mean, either way, we're glad to have you, and I'm really excited about the season to come. Well, sometimes the events of a single week can change everything. Let me take you back to a week that began just about two years ago today. On Sunday, March 8th, 2020, we gathered for worship here at Grace as usual. But we were also processing the frightening news about something called the coronavirus that had recently broken out at a Biogen conference right here in Boston. On Monday of that week, the elders met and, and began to consider shutting down services the following Sunday. On Wednesday, the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a global pandemic. On Thursday, we gathered the Grace Chapel staff and announced that we would be closing our buildings for a couple of weeks. On Friday, the White House declared a national emergency. And on Sunday, Governor Baker closed schools for three weeks and banned gatherings of more than 25 people. So that day, March 15th, Grace Chapel held its first fully online Sunday service. Everything changed that week, didn't it? School, work, travel, shopping, entertainment, and church. And two years later, we're still feeling the effects of it. Sometimes, the events of a single week can change everything. And it's true on a, on a personal level. I think about the week you, you moved from one city or state or country to another. How many changes did you experience that week to your family life, your friendships, your work, your school, your church? How about the week you got married or the week your illness was diagnosed or the week you lost someone? Sometimes the events of a single week can change everything. And that's never been more true than it was a couple of thousand years ago in what we call Holy Week. Seven days, eight actually, that changed everything. And we even have names for some of those days. Palm Sunday, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. The week that changed everything. That was, that was the original idea behind this series that we're now calling Change Maker. And our plan is to walk through the events of Holy Week between now and Easter Sunday. And along the way, we'll be asking how this week changed everything 
and what we can learn from Jesus about experiencing and effecting change in our own lives and the world around us. So Adam got us off to a great start last week. He took us to a pivotal event in the middle of the week on what we call Maundy Thursday. That night around a dinner table, Jesus changed the way we think about leadership, a change that Adam called from status to service. It was a change that Jesus demonstrated by washing his disciples' feet. And then he invited them and us to do the same. Well, today, I'd like to take you back now to the first day of that week, to what we call Palm Sunday, where Jesus is going to change the way we think about power. Now, all four Gospels tell the story of what happened that day, which tells us how significant a day it was. Now, we're going to work mainly out of Matthew's account, but we'll, we'll draw on the others as well. So let's walk through the events of that day and then kind of come back and and try to figure out what they teach us about making change in our lives and and in the world around us. So we'll begin in Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 3. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them. And bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them that the the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. Now we know from John's gospel that this event took place six days before the Passover, uh, which, working backwards, means it would have been a Sunday, the first day of the Hebrew week. Now the journey probably began in Bethany at Mary and Martha's house where Lazarus had been raised just a few weeks earlier. Now, at first, the entourage probably included the 12 disciples, uh, the the, the handful of women who traveled with Jesus, and probably a few local friends. But we get the sense that the numbers grew as they made their way toward Jerusalem. And there would have been this sense of excitement and, and anticipation among the group. I mean, Jesus had gained quite a reputation at this point with his miracles and his teaching. And with the raising of Lazarus, there must have been this sense that that anything was possible. After many months in the hinterlands of Galilee, they were finally heading to Jerusalem, the seat of power. Jesus had an eye-of-the-tiger look about him, an intensity in his voice that was almost scary. And on top of all of that, it it was Passover, when they celebrated Israel's deliverance from Egypt. Uh, You might think of that day the the way we think about the 4th of July, without the fireworks or the hot dogs. Uh, Passover was a time of of patriotic pride and fervor. So as the crowd grew, as they got closer to Jerusalem, that sense of expectancy would only have increased. What was Jesus going to do next? Would this be the turning point, the beginning of the the revolution that would set Israel free? Well, as they uh, approached Bethpage, uh, the last real town before Jerusalem, Jesus quietly sent a couple of the disciples ahead to fetch a donkey and her colt. 
Now, the fact that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all mention this detail uh, tells us two things about Jesus. First, that he was in charge. Nothing about this week would happen by accident or catch him by surprise. Uh, Jesus wouldn't be a passive participant of this week or a victim of circumstance. He was carefully orchestrating the events of the week, even to the point of reserving a rent-a-mule for his ride into Jerusalem. The second thing this tells us about Jesus is that he wanted to make a statement. He wasn't just going to saunter into town like any other pilgrim. He was sending a message. And in verses 4 and 5, in a sort of editorial aside, Matthew tells us exactly the statement he was making. And we'll come back to that in a minute. But, but for now, let's, let's keep up with, with the parade or the march or, or whatever you want to call it as they approach the gates to the city. Let's skip down to verses 6 through 8. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now, when the crowd saw Jesus sitting on that donkey, riding into town, surrounded by his disciples, it sparked something in their Jewish imaginations. It brought to mind the inauguration of David's son, Solomon, uh, recorded like this in the book of 1 Kings. So Zadok the priest went down and put Solomon on King David's mule and escorted him to Gihon. Zadok, took, Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the sacred tent and anointed Solomon. Then they sounded the trumpet and all the people shouted, Long live King Solomon. It also would have brought to mind the arrival of, of Jehu when he was anointed king back in 2 Kings chapter 9, where we read, They hurried and took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. So, is that what this was? An inauguration? An anointing? Well, if so, then, then, then they should do for Jesus what the people of old did for their kings. So they began shouting and taking their coats off and throwing them in the road, uh, the ancient version of a red carpet. So you see what I mean about Jesus making a statement? Jesus knew the people would make these connections in their minds. He knew where their imaginations would take them, the deliverance they were longing for at Passover. And in the next verses, the people give voice to that imagination and to that longing. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now those words came right from Psalm 118 which looked forward to a coming Messiah who would conquer Israel's enemies and bring in a new order 
of peace and justice and, and righteousness. And the crazy thing is, Jesus let it happen. He let the crowd say these things. He's never done that before. Up until this point, what has Jesus done every time a, a, a demon has outed him as Messiah? Every time a person has, has tried to spread the word about him, or every time a crowd has tried to make him king, every time he's shut it down, right? Told them to be quiet. But now, for the first time, he lets them say it out loud. He lets them shout it even so the whole city would hear it. This is it, the disciples must have thought, the moment we've been waiting for. Finally, Jesus is going to take his rightful place on the throne of Israel. This was the best day ever. This was the beginning of the best week ever. If only they knew, right? If only they had paid closer attention to the statement Jesus was making that day. He was a king, all right. They, they, they got that right. But he was not at all the kind of king they were looking for. And this would not at all be the kind of week they were hoping for. It wasn't until years later that they fully understood what was happening that day. What Jesus was trying to say. And that's why Matthew inserts this editorial comment back in verse 4. So, so let's go back and, and take a look at it. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Matthew's recalling the words of the prophet Zechariah, who described a certain kind of king arriving in a certain kind of way, humbly, gently, lowly, riding on a donkey. Not even a full-grown donkey, but a colt, the foal of a donkey that had never been ridden before. You know, it's interesting, there's, there's evidence in the ancient world that kings and princes would very deliberately choose the kind of mount they would ride into a city. If they came riding a war horse, they came to fight. If they came in riding a mule or a donkey, they came in peace. So, Remember how intentional we said Jesus was? How carefully he had arranged his ride into Jerusalem, down to the age of the donkey he would sit on? Jesus was sending a message. He would be a king, all right, but a different kind of king. A kind of king the world had never seen before. Unfortunately, Nobody got the message. Nobody understood. So when Jesus refused to, to power up, Judas betrayed him. The disciples abandoned him. 
the crowd turned on him, and the powers that be put him to death. So by Friday night, it looked like the, the journey had ended in humiliation and defeat. But the week wasn't over yet, was it? It wasn't until the sun rose on the eighth day that people woke up and realized that everything, and I mean everything, had changed. So, so on this first day of a week that would change the world, Jesus changed the way change happens. Not by powering up, but by stooping down. Not by political clout and and military might, but by personal humility, vulnerability, and sacrifice. Not by physical force, but by spiritual strength. I mean, this was nothing less than a revolution in evolution. A change in the way change happens. Now, we've talked before about the work of a a contemporary historian named John Dixon. Dixon points out that before the time of Jesus, humility was not a virtue. In the ancient world, which was all about honor and status and power, humility was considered a failure, a sign of weakness. Uh, Dixon cites something called the Delphic Canon from the 6th century BC, a list of 147 ethical qualities valued in the Greco-Roman world. Things like respect, kindness, justice, self-control, all good things. But humility is conspicuously absent from that list. The Greek word for humility was used to describe someone weak, inferior, unworthy. It wasn't until after the time of Jesus that humility began to be used in a positive sense as a virtue. And it was Jesus' journey to the cross and his shameful public death that demonstrated the power and the beauty of humility. Stooping down for the sake of others, lowering yourself as a way of lifting others up. And one of the very first articulations of this new way of change-making can be found in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians, which Adam referenced last week. Paul writes about Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Such words would never have been written or even conceived before Jesus. Last week, we defined a change maker 
as someone who takes creative action to solve a social problem. I think riding into town on the foal of a donkey qualifies as creative action. So, to to answer the questions we raised at the beginning, how did Jesus change everything? By stooping down instead of powering up. And how can we change the world around us? The same way. Change happens when we choose the way of Jesus, the way of humility, vulnerability, and sacrifice. So, what does it all mean for us, practically speaking? How do we, 2,000 years later, practice the way of Jesus as we try to effect change in the world around us? Well, two thoughts, two applications come to mind. And the first has to do with changing society. If we think we can bring about kingdom change by means of political power, we are not only mistaken, we are abandoning the way of Jesus. Now I'll say that again. If we think we can bring about kingdom change by means of political power, we're not only mistaken, we're abandoning the way of Jesus. Time and again, Jesus refused to acquire or assert political power. He entered into the world in the most vulnerable way possible, as a baby born on the road to a peasant couple. He spent the first 30 years of his life in a working-class family in the nowhere town of Nazareth. He silenced anyone who tried to reveal his true identity. He ran to the hills when the crowd tried to make him king. And on the final week of his life, he rode into town on a borrowed donkey. It has never gone well for the church when we've attempted to advance the kingdom by political or military means. We've seen it down through the centuries, the Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition, the papacy when it got all corrupted by political power. And, And we've seen it in the division and distraction we've experienced in recent years as the church has become enamored with and entangled with political entities. The church has always been at its best when it's ministered from the margins of society, from the periphery of power. The early church had no social status or political power whatsoever. Christians were a laughingstock at best and a persecuted minority at worst. And yet, within a few hundred years, the church had overwhelmed the Roman Empire and changed the course of human history. And they did it by stooping down, by caring for orphans and widows, 
by rescuing babies that had been thrown on the ash heaps, by tending to the sick and dying in times of plague, and by bowing their necks to the executioners rather than bowing their hearts to any earthly power. Change happens in society when we choose the way of Jesus, the way of humility, vulnerability, and sacrifice. So from powering up to stooping down. Powering up is the way of Vladimir Putin. Brute force, military might, political oppression. But, but, but even if Putin wins the war and claims Ukrainian territory, he will never win the hearts of the Ukrainian people. They will resent and resist until the day comes when they're able to rise up and take their country back, hopefully by peaceful and democratic means. Powering up is the way of the world. Stooping down is the way of Jesus. Well, as, as I was working with this text, the, the, this journey to Jerusalem brought to my mind another march, another week that changed the world. On a Sunday in March, some 50 years ago, March 7th, 1965 to be exact, a group of black Americans set out from an AME church in Selma, Alabama, intending to march peacefully all the way to the capital city of Montgomery to secure their constitutional right to vote. Martin Luther King Jr. had, had helped to organize the march, but, but he wasn't present that day. It was led instead by, by young black leaders like John Lewis and, and, and Andrew Young. And as the peaceful protesters crested the Edmund Pettus Bridge, they encountered a wall of state troopers wielding whips and tear gas and billy clubs. When the marchers asked for a chance to speak with the local authority, they were denied and told to go home. And moments later, without provocation, the troopers charged. Now, the protesters had been trained in the way of nonviolence, so they didn't fight back. Instead, they stooped down, absorbing the blows of nightsticks, shielding each other from the cracking whips, and stumbling back to their church, bloodied and battered. That was Sunday, the first day of the week. And it looked for all the world like humiliation and defeat, which it was on, on many levels. But as it turned out, the TV cameras were rolling that bloody Sunday. And the events were witnessed by millions of Americans, many of whom, black and white, rallied to the cause and spoke up and traveled to Selma. And two days later, on March 9th, Martin Luther King led a company of 2,000 across that same bridge. And when they once again found the troopers waiting for them, they stooped down again, this time in prayer. 
And in prayer, they determined that it would be a mistake to confront the authorities that way again. So that was Tuesday. And once again, it, it looked like defeat. King was criticized for turning back, called a coward by his own advisors. Some of them wanted to, to take up arms at that point, to fight back with force. King reminded them that this was not the way this battle would be won. That the way of peace and prayer would ultimately triumph. And eight days later, on Monday, March 15th, President Johnson spoke to the nation and pledged his support and promised to pass a voting rights bill that would secure the right of all Americans to vote. And a few days later, the people made their march to Montgomery. And a few months later, the voting rights bill was passed. Not by powering up, but by stooping down. Now, we need to point out that those hard-won voting rights are being threatened again today. And so as fellow Americans and as followers of Jesus, we need to stand once again with our brothers and sisters of color to raise our voices and to stoop down in prayer to see that those rights are preserved. So as, as, we, as, as we seek to change society, we are certainly free and, and responsible to exercise our political rights. There's nothing wrong or unchristlike about that. But we do it Jesus' way, with humility, vulnerability, and sacrifice. And the same is true when it comes to our personal lives. When, when we want to see change in our homes, in our school or workplace, in our neighborhood, in the church. Brene Brown has written and spoken extensively on the power of vulnerability, of leading with our humanity, not hiding our weakness and brokenness, opening our hearts freely to one another. She describes vulnerability this way. To let ourselves be seen, deeply seen. To love with our whole hearts, even when there's no guarantee. And as a parent, that's really hard. To practice gratitude and joy in those moments when we're wondering, can I love you this much? Can I believe this passionately? Can I be this fierce about something? Something happens when we engage people from this posture, stooping down in humility and vulnerability, they change. We change. Things change. So, so what does it look like to choose the way of Jesus in our, in our school, for instance, or our workplace? Well, well it might mean that Instead of jockeying for position, for popularity or status, we choose instead to stoop down, to befriend the least popular 
kid to, to choose the smallest desk or office, to let someone else take the credit, to volunteer for the job that no one else wants to do. Who knows how a few simple actions like that might change the culture of your school or your workplace. And, and what might it look like to, to stoop down at home? Well, it might be as simple as, as clearing the dishes or handing over the remote. It might be as substantial as setting aside a career opportunity or a vacation choice for the sake of your spouse or your family. On our sabbatical, we, we had a chance to spend time with, with all of our kids and, and, and to be around long enough to get a close-up look at, at the challenges and decisions they're all facing as they, as they build their homes and raise their families. And like many parents at, at our stage of life, we're learning how to enter into their lives in ways that are helpful and well-received. And that can be really hard as Brene Brown observes. It certainly isn't a time for parents to power up, that's for sure. So we've actually asked them how we can best do that, what they want from us at this stage in our relationship. And interestingly, their answer isn't money or babysitting or help painting the house. What they've asked us for is vulnerability. They want us to invite them into our lives, to be more open about our own challenges and decisions and fears and hopes, to be be fully ourselves with them, which sounds an awful lot like the kind of relationship Jesus wants with us. What would it look like to be vulnerable with your family? And what does stooping down look like at church? Well, it might mean sitting on the floor with a bunch of kids, listening to their stories and and sharing your story with them, and the Jesus story too. It might mean greeting people at the door, serving coffee in the cafe, starting a conversation with someone you don't know, walking across the room to introduce yourself to someone who doesn't look like you. Think for a moment about how you show up in the everyday places of your life. Do you come in on a war horse or a donkey? Are you powering up or stooping down? Change happens when we choose the way of Jesus, the way of humility, vulnerability, and sacrifice. Now, a a final thought as as we finish up. Stooping down doesn't come naturally to most of us. We're not wired to let down our guard to put others ahead of ourselves, to set aside our own needs and wants. And that's why the first step to making change in the world around you is to welcome the change maker into your own life. To 
to, to throw down your pride and self-protection, to, to wave the white flag of surrender and to proclaim Jesus as the king of your heart. And you can do that without fear because your king comes to you gentle, riding on a donkey, even the foal of a donkey. Well, if you'd like to know more about, about how to do that, just reach out to me, Brian with a Y at grace.org. And if you want to think some more about this, I'll encourage you to check out our still meditation, which you can find on our website tomorrow at grace.org Easter. But for now, let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for this season of the year, for this remarkable journey we're making with you to the cross and beyond. Thank you for being a king who comes in peace. And peace is what we really need right now, Lord. So we throw open the gates of our hearts to you today, and we welcome your rule in our homes, our church, our nation, and our world. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth today as it is in heaven. Amen.